And I'm not going to do anything clever, I'm afraid. I'm just going to go through the text this morning and see what the Bible says. What is it that God gets impassioned about? You need a little bit of context. It says it's the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Judah uh, is the north... No, it isn't. Judah is the south kingdom. Uh, The north and south kingdoms split... And there were various crises of faith. And in the end, both kingdoms were destroyed. I did a sort of little timeline there. I won't stop on it. But it just says that the northern kingdom got zapped there. And the southern kingdom ended up being zapped there. And in between, there are two crises. One to do with a chap called Ahaz. And one to do with a chap called Hezekiah, who was his son. They were both kings. We won't stop on that because it comes up later. You might need a little bit of geography. This is the Mediterranean. That's Cyprus. And the places you need to know are Jerusalem, God's headquarters there, and the the temptation of Egypt as a possible source of help, a possible ally, and then Assyria, this nation, as a big threat, which eventually came and uh, destroyed the northern kingdom, and which was followed by Babylon which engulfed the southern kingdom. But that just give you a little... We'll do that bit more detail some other time. Let's look at the first nine verses in which I think God is full of emotion about his complaints. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Uh, Back in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses uh, said that this is the way it would be, that if God's people caused him to complain, God would be found sort of invoking the cosmos and saying, heavens and earth, have you seen what is happening here? Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth. And what is it that heavens and earth are invited to bring into this sort of cosmic courtroom? This is what God says. I reared up children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. And God is impassioned about that. Many of you here have brought up children. And you know a little bit of what it is to invest yourself in your children, to bring them up. And you know how bitter it is if your children were to spit that back in your face. It's a bitter thing. And God says, that's what my people have done to me. I reared them, brought them up, but they've spat in my face. They've rebelled against me. They're ungrateful. They're rebellious. And he says, even animals have more sense than this. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger. The animals know where they're going to get food. They know who's going to look after them. Even stupid animals know that. But my people, Israel, does not know. My people do not understand. There's a sort of stupidity about the people which God is complaining about in this very strong way. And then you notice in the beginning of verse 4, the word... A-H-R. Okay, that's what the dentist says to you. 
was it the doctor? Anyway, but, but this is not that sort of R. This is, this is a, a sort of sigh from the depths. Oh! You remember Jesus sighed like that? Do you remember Jesus looking up to heaven and sighing about the hardness of heart? Well, here's God sighing and saying, O oh, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, have spurned the Holy One of Israel, and turned their backs on him. So again, we're thinking about the metaphor of children. Um, I think educational theory and social theory would work, would tend towards, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, saying that children aren't actually naughty, they're simply misguided or disadvantaged. But God is not afraid to say of his children, it's not that they're just misguided, and they're nice really, it's not that they're just disadvantaged. I mean, they've had lots of advantages, actually. They're sinful. And he uses um, uh, an array of words. He talks about their guilt. He talks about their corruption. And he talks about them being evildoers. And it's one of these places where God does not pull his punches. He says, this nation is evil, guilty, and corrupt. He doesn't pull his punches. And he's saying, this should not be. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Something rather deliberate about this. Spurning is when you deliberately turn away from something. They spurned the Holy One of Israel and they've deliberately gone in their own direction. And then it, he changes the picture. This is somebody who's uh, you know, perhaps in a bare-knuckle fight and who is losing badly, and rather than saying, okay, that's enough, thank you, just keeps on going and is being mashed and pulverized in a horrible way. He says, why do you, should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and bruises and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged with oil. And he says, this is, it's just a self-destructive thing. I thought I put the word self-destructive there, but I obviously didn't. There's something self-destructive going on here. Instead of, it's not even in your own interests to carry on the way you're carrying on, turning away from God. It doesn't even help you. It just makes matters worse. And at this point, I'll stop for breath because we have a city, and there's a picture of our city. And um, you might say, well, it's a good job it's just about them. Good job, because God doesn't say anything like that about us. And I'm going to say, we are not ancient Israel. This is addressed first and foremost to ancient Israel. And yet, would we not say that in our city there is ingratitude? God has given every human being, not just ancient Israel, but given every human being life and breath and everything else. And it is the great sin of humankind that we are ungrateful, that we do not thank God or give God honor as God, but exalt ourselves instead. So I think it's not just ancient Israel who comes under this impassioned complaint 
Our we could, we, yeah, I could sort of reflect on it in all sorts of ways. Historically, our European culture has derived its strength and its wholesomeness from Christianity, from the God of the Bible. But I think it would not be an exaggeration to say that the mood of our culture is to turn our backs on this God and his ways and say we can do it far better ourselves. But actually, we don't. Actually, it just works out the wrong way. So I'm suggesting that we shouldn't too quickly just say these verses apply to other cultures and other nations rather than our own. I think that the cosmic court has other cases to try. And the Bible says we will all come before the judgment seat of Christ. Nobody will escape God's judgment. Let's follow on these impassioned complaints just a little bit. It, it, in verse 7, for these people, the way this was a heading was for military defeat, as I intimated earlier on the little timeline thing. Your country is desolate, verse 7. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. And of course, to ancient Israel, the idea of their heritage being overtaken by foreigners would have been the most abominable thought, the most repulsive thought. Their safety is undone. All that is rich and worthwhile is stripped, taken away. All order and beauty becomes chaos and ugliness as their fields are laid waste by strangers. And uh, they are left. This is quite a poignant picture. The daughter of Zion, meaning to say this grand, glorious city, God's headquarters city, is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons. I don't know, have you ever driven from Ringmer into Lewis? Uh, been on a bus. And as you come there, am I correct? You see a load of allotments with, I always fascinated by this, a load of, forgive me if you own one of these allotments, but they, they've got just sort of rickety old sheds that's what it looks like as I pass by. You know, rickety old sheds in these allotments. And allotments tend to be like that, don't they? And, he, and uh, there's no criticism. I mean, a rickety shed is fine. But, the, but uh, this glorious city, this sort of metropolis, is now left like at a rickety shed in a field of cucumbers. That's what it's like. And it's, this is you know, how, how are the mighty fallen? There's a picture of such. And um, the comment comes, wow, unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have been like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah were ancient cities that were, um, they're notorious for their evil, um, inhumanity, and they were overthrown by God in a very um, notable judgment. They were just wiped out. And here, this little bit of the text here, 
is saying, you know, we would have ended up like that too if God had been thorough and just wiped the board. That's exactly what we deserved. But he didn't. He chose, for reasons best known to himself, to leave some, to spare some, to preserve some. The word for for that sort of thing is grace. It's giving these people mercy that they don't deserve. And he says, unless the Lord had spared some, we would have been like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. And Paul picks up this exact thought in Romans 9.29, uh, and he quotes it exactly, and he says, unless God had saved a remnant by grace, we would all have been totally scuppered. And I wonder if you would agree with that thought. How come I'm a Christian? You might be thinking to yourself, how come I'm a Christian? Is it because I was so much better than other people that I stood out morally, spiritually, by virtue of my special character and personality, perceptiveness? Wouldn't it it be better to say, do you know, I should have been just swept away with everyone else. The only fact, the only reason that I'm here is because God spared me in his grace. He was kind to me, which I never deserved. And isn't that an amazing thing? That by his grace, he's saved me and spared me and taken me from where I ought to be in the gutter and brought me into his kingdom and into his family. Isn't that, isn't that the way that a Christian thinks about this? Oh, no, apparently not. Yes, I think so. Unless the Lord had left us some survivors, we would have been like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. There's a, there's a touch here on this button of God's amazing grace. Amazing grace to people who don't deserve it. Let's now move to verses 10 to 15. So I think, so God was impassioned in his complaint. How? It's a complaint to say, you guys have got it so wrong. Turn back. And let's go now to his confrontation. So he is now addressing the city the city of Jerusalem, but he picks up on the Sodom and Gomorrah and addresses them as that. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. No, no, Jerusalem, we're Jerusalem, we're God's headquarters. No, I think you're the rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. This isn't just the rulers, it's the people as well. And they're saying, no, no, hold on, this can't be right because Sodom and Gomorrah were notoriously wicked cities. God overthrew them. But that would never happen to us. God, get real. This is not going to happen to us. Because we are very observant religious people. It's never happened to us. And God takes their religion to pieces. Now, Isaiah tends to like lists. And there's some lists in here. And uh, he, he says, okay, you've got, we've got a load of religion we're very religious people. That, we can't possibly be under God's disapproval in any shape or form. And God comes out with this um, stinging critique. 
the multitude of your sacrifices, verse 11, what are they to me? Says the Lord, I have more than enough. And here's a list of burnt offerings, rams, the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. You've got the whole array of sacrifices because this is ancient Israel and they add all these sacrifices. And uh, the, uh, ancient Israelites said, the ancient Israelites were saying, we do these sacrifices morning, afternoon and evening. We've got lambs, bulls, goats. We do all the stuff. We do all that. And God itemizes their sacrifices and says, what use do you think this is to me? Do you honestly think that what I'm really counting is the number of kilograms of flesh that you, uh, you kill or the number of pints of blood that you... Do you really think that that's what impresses me? Do you really think that that's what I'm interested in. I have no pleasure, verse 11, in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Now, but we all come together, don't we? Uh, we have various sorts of meetings. In fact, our timetable is probably pretty well full of them. We have a, a whole list of those coming up in a minute. Uh, verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts remember a uh, um, uh, an anecdote from um, a pastor in Sri Lanka who had trained in England and had been invited to an ethnic congregation in a part of Europe I'll try not to be too specific uh, uh, because, uh, because of his ethnicity. So he went along to this ethnic congregation. They'd all gathered together. They were all um, immigrants in a foreign land, so they all had that together. And it was a church. And he stood up to, to preach. And he preached the word of God. And the amount of interest in the congregation was pretty much zero. And there was, he says, I remember this, he says there was a girl at the back chewing gum, bubble gum. And as he preached, she blew the bubbles at him. Like that. That's how much interest there was in God. Oh, they all came together because they were all same ethnicity. And they had a lovely time together. But the interest in God was zero. And I think that's the sort of thing that was happening here. You trample my courts, he says. You're not interested in coming before me in fear and love and seriousness. You're just here for a good time. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Verse 13. Here's a list. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, Evil assemblies, new moon festivals, appointed feasts. You know, you just itemize the, the number of different meetings on their agenda. And God says, I hate the lot of them. Oh, I mean, verse 14, my soul hates. Isn't that an awful thing for God to say? Do you understand the, 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 the strength of this, my soul. So you say, oh, God has a soul. No, it doesn't mean, you, this isn't about how God is made up. It's, it's a way, when you say 
when you were to say, my soul loves beef burgers, it would mean that you really, really love beef burgers. So my soul loves it, saying, really, I do. And God is saying here, the real me just hates what you guys do when you get together. It's, it's appalling, isn't it? Absolutely appalling. And what he says here in verse 14, they have become a burden to me. I have weary of bearing them. That's what I'm just telling you what he's saying. I'm not trying to pin this on us. I'm just saying let's hear what he's saying to these people. He hates it from the bottom of his heart. And he says, here's a thing. You come to pray, but I'm not going to listen to you. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. But I thought God always listens to prayer. Well, generally, we are encouraged to pray. Absolutely. But God says that there can be such an extreme situation of spiritual stupidity, spiritual stubbornness, spiritual hypocrisy. I won't hear prayer because I'm so um, repulsed by the whole thing. There is such a thing as religion that God is repulsed by. There's a thought. There's a thought. Even though you offer many prayers, verse 15, I will not listen. So you pray holding out your hands. And he says, what you don't realize is your hands are full of blood. I'm not going to listen to you when you pray and your hands are full of blood. He hides his eyes and blocks his ears because there's blood on their hands. And I think for his listeners, they would have said, I really don't see what you're going on about. What is the problem? We have all our religion. We have our timetable. We have our sacrifices, or it says in the Bible, isn't it? We're doing all that stuff. What's the problem? Why on earth have I put that? They're very active. They're very compliant as far as we can see. But it's an unsettling thing, isn't it? God says, for all that shows on the outside, there's something that is deeply, fundamentally wrong with your religion. It's a rather disturbing thought, isn't it? Because we might, we might be thinking, well, God, we're here in church. What more can God want? We've actually turned up. Um, that must be it. And God can say, well, actually just turning up doing the things, the Christian things, the spiritual things, doesn't necessarily mean that I'm happy with it. Rather frightening, isn't it? So I think this at least makes us cautious on external measurements of church. Um, So in the UK, we... We can hardly believe that there are churches of 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 people, but apparently in various parts of the world there are. And we're sort of, we think, well, that must be amazing. 3,000 people. And I think it just makes us pause and say, God doesn't think numbers are everything. He doesn't, does he? And he doesn't think that being very active is everything. Now you're going to say, well, what is he looking for? 
Of course, that's always the unsettling question. What is he looking for? Well, let's go on to the next, chat, uh, the next section and see this invitation that he makes. And this is an impassioned invitation. He picks up on the, the way they are managing to combine religion with violence, with inhumanity, and with cruelty. And this blood, he says, wash and make yourselves clean. A friend of mine ministered in, um, in Brazil, actually, pardon me, Brazilian people, uh, and he talked about some branches of so-called Christianity which went hand in hand with uh, drug, drug business. And so you could have both those things going on together. And people thought, that's fine. We've got um, Christian meetings and activity, but the finances is linked with drugs. And I think that can't possibly happen. But this chapter makes me think, well, maybe it could, because they seem to be capable of combining religious rights with huge wrongs in the way they lived. And he says, now, let's sort this out. Now, this is the wonderful invitation in this whole passage. Let's sort this out. Verse 18 is one of the really famous gospel call of God, invitation of God passages. Verse 18 says, come now, we can sort this out. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as wool. Though they're red as crimson, sorry, white as snow, though they're red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And you might be thinking, I'm not a drug, I'm not a drug trafficker. I haven't murdered anybody. I don't think there's blood on my hands, literally. But I'm still a sinner, and I say this invitation works just as well for any sinner. You don't have to be a, 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 a drug in a drug cartel for this to apply to you. Whatever sin is yours, it might not be that you murder people, but you might have a sharp tongue or whatever. God says, we can, we can make you clean. Whatever, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, they're red as crimson, they shall be like wool. So let's look at this section, verse 16 to 20, which are an impassioned invitation. He says, you need, come, let's, we need a washing thing going on here. And it's got two, uh, two sides to it. There's a sort of a, a human responsibility side and a God's grace side of it. So in verse 16, he says, wash and make yourselves clean. Yeah, stop doing that. If, if, you were, if you were in a drug cartel, say, I'm sorry, I'm resigning from this. If you were um, in a gang, which uh, a, a knife gang or something like that, you say, I'm not, I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, if you know, Whatever it is, you say, I want God more than I want this. I'm going to turn to God. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. It's called repentance. That's what God wants of people, to repent. 
wholesale, everything. Turn to God. And the particular things he picks up on here are the, words, are the things in society. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. That's in verse 17. So stopping things and starting other things. He says that you can't be a Christian if you just carry on the way you always have done. There needs to be a, a crisis, either a huge crisis or perhaps a, an almost unnoticeable crisis, but a point in which you say, Lord, I want to stop that life and I want to start life with you. And whatever it takes for that old life to stop, you do it to me, Lord, because that's, that's what I want, to live life with you. Stopping and starting. It's repentance. It's saying, that was wrong and I'm turning to you. That's what repentance is. And uh, I think we could summarize it by saying, you start to care about the things and the people that God cares about. Because these people seem to only care about money and power. And he says, that, and, and therefore you overlook the vulnerable and the needy because they don't, you don't even notice them Start noticing the fatherless and the widow. And he says, learn to do right, verse 17, and do justice. Come to those words in a minute. So it's not, so uh, repentance for them particularly meant thinking of the weak and vulnerable and not just noticing the praiseworthy, the glamorous, and the powerful. I remember going to a, a meeting, uh, somebody came along with me, and in the, in the meeting there were some glamorous and rich type influential people, and my companion <laughs> left me and went off and talked to them, and I thought, oh right, I do, obviously don't count anymore. Um, uh, making that a way of life, God says, is not, is not God's way. God's way is to care about the vulnerable, the weak, the little children of this world, as Jesus would have put it. And God meets us in this. So your sins are scarlet, they'll be white as snow. He says, if you turn this way, you'll eat, verse 19, the best from the land. You'll eat good. That's a very lovely word, good. You'll eat good. And, and some of you are probably facing this sort of question. What way am I going to live? Because uh, you know, I've got powerful, powerful pressures from the world, powerful pressures inside myself, but God is saying neither of those are right. If you want to eat the good, you've got to turn and do it my way. That's what he says to these people here. If you are willing and obedient, verse 19 you will eat good from the land. It's an invitation. It was an invitation then, it's an invitation now. Come now, we can get this right. He addressed it to people who were up to their chins in wrong things. Well, he says it more strongly than I feel inclined to say it, but he says guilt, corruption, and iniquity. 
Maybe you're sitting here, maybe you're bogged down in, well, I don't know what you might be bogged down in, a relationship that you know you shouldn't be in because of the Lord. Or maybe you're driven by self and the thing, you know, money, sex, power, the things that are powerful in our culture. And and God says, or maybe even bogged down in religion, me, come to me, says God. Let's work this out person to person. Let's reason together and my power, my grace can save you. It can be put right. Do you believe that? Because faith's important, you see. God makes these promises and we're to receive them in faith. I trust you in that. I'll go for that. Let's look now at the next section, verses 21 to 27, which are an impassioned statement about future redemption. And there's this contrast between the Jerusalem that God sees in whatever that, the date of this is, is applying to, the, the, the rubbish Jerusalem, and what he has in mind. So just follow it through, if you would, from verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. Uh, Harlot is um, sex for sale. It's usually applied in the Bible to uh, not not just sort of uh, what's it called? Um, The sex industry. But the heart as regards what your heart longs for, what you give your heart to in terms of worship usually referred to as other gods. But anyway, see how the faithful city has become a harlot. Let's just pick up on these words. Righteousness used to dwell in her. And uh, you forgive me, but uh, there's a Hebrew word here, mishpat. There's a very lovely, rich word, mishpat. Doing things right. The, The sort of rightness of the way things were amongst the people and in front of God. That's what used to be there. And this other word, um, that was justice and righteousness, Sedek. If you remember, there was an old hymn, Jehovah Sidkenu. Do you know, some of you remember that? That's a word, righteousness, Sedek. Um, forgive me, I just love these words. But he, he, he said, this is what used to be there. Mishpat, Sedek. Um, but it isn't now. Your silver has become dross. Your fine wine has become tasteless. Your rulers are rebels. Companions of thieves, they all love bribes. They chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not become before them. And he describes how it's not what it should be. Ancient Israel, the Jerusalem of of um, Isaiah's day. Did any of you see that Luther film where he, he went to Rome? Do you remember that bit where he, he in medieval Christianity, was, was told that uh, Rome was the great holy city and he went there and he found there was prostitution, uh, Pope had illegitimate children, the clergy didn't care about anything. It's the same sort of thing. This, it's not 
what it ought to have been. And this extraordinary statement in verse 24, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel says, I will get relief from my foes. So get relief is a word which is like the word Noah, which actually means comfort. I get some comfort from these irritating foes. How could he call his own city his enemy? Do you get something of the tension that's going on here? Here they are. These people are my enemies. I will avenge myself on my enemies, verse 24. And then there's some things about turning. I will turn my hand against you. So you think, right, that's it. God's going, God's going to throw them all on the rubbish heap because they have not, because of the way they've related to him, their hardness of heart, their sin. And then it takes this extraordinary turn, verse 25, I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross. And there's something really remarkable going on here because God is, he's not saying, oh, I don't really mind. They're quite lovely people anyway. Oh, you know, who cares? They're fine. He he gives the full weight to the enormity of their, their sin. And he says, this is appalling. I'm totally against it. And then he says, somehow, without stopping being against their sin, I will take away their sin. Do you get that? You see those words? I will, th- I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove your impurities. And God's saying, through some extraordinarily non-compromise method, I will be totally against sin and I will end up having the city that I want to have. I will restore your judges as of old. That's a turn word, I think. I will turn back your judges. The judges, the word for judge is the word... Shafat, which is like a bit like Mishpat, it's somebody who brings order and peace and goodness. He's not saying I'm going to give you high court judges. He's saying I'm going to populate your community with people who can bring order and peace and goodness into it. I will restore your judges as in days of old, your counselors at the beginning. And afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness. You'll be called the city of, which is it? I haven't written it down. Um, the city of, is it Sedek or Mishpat? I think probably Sedek. The city of Sedek. That's where you'll be. And the faithful city, there's another lovely word here which means... Um, it's the word from which we eventually get amen, meaning to be established and steady and, you know, on the rock. And he says, that's the sort of city you will be. You will be um, a, a righteous city and you will be the steady, on the rock city. That's what you're going to be, the faithful city. And he says, verse 27, Zion will be redeemed, a wonderful word, redeemed, to change things powerfully for the better by the expenditure of huge force or the expenditure of huge uh, resources. You'll be redeemed with mishpat, with justice, and her penitent ones, that's another word for turn, the turning ones 
with, I haven't written it down, Sedek, I, I guess. So all these wonderful things, the, the righteousness and the justice, God is not saying, oh, well, don't bother with those, I'll just forget about that. He says, I will have that, I want that, I'm going to have that, and I will ensure I get that, and I will redeem my people, I will purify my people, I will even be against my people to ensure that I get that, that holy city in the end. So it's quite a baffling statement, isn't it? Is God friendly or is he hostile? He says that he's against his foes, but he's actually saying, I will have my people. And it's a a complete conundrum. How can such a change be brought about? How can the God who is against the sin of his people and sees it in all its horror simultaneously say, but I will have a holy people. Something powerful happens, isn't it? For Israel, um, they go through, and they will go through, the horrors of being treated as God's enemy. And the fire, the purging, that I think he has in mind for them, is they will go into exile, and their route to the glories that the prophet looks forward to don't bypass the exile but go through the fires of exile and something emerges on the far side of that but I think there's more to it than that because I think the final answer to what's in view here is what happened to Jesus on the cross because he in particular in his own person took the the way that God was against his people. If you imagine that againstness being put into a cup, Jesus saw that cup and drank the whole lot of it. In fact, that's what he says in the Garden of Gethsemane, isn't it? He says, I can see a cup there full full of the horrible things of God's hatred of sin. And you don't just pour it down the drain and get rid of it. Jesus drinks it up. I think that's what happened there. God is against sin. He um, disconnects himself from, from sin. And Jesus was on the cross as it were, in exile from God, forsaken, separated from God. He endured those fires so that he could come out on the far side of that and say, here is my people. I build my church because of my blood, because of what I did. My people will be forgiven. They will be made holy. They will be the people that I want them to be. Let's um, look at the, what he says about the final destination. And it, it ends on this, on this negative note, doesn't it? It says, Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. 
but rebels and sinners will both be broken. Those who forsake the Lord will perish. You'll be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You'll be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You'll be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. Uh, this is about ultimate destination. And um, you may be aware of somebody called Mrs. Theresa May. Have you heard of her? And uh, have you heard of Jacob Rees-Mogg? Oh, no. That's quite encouraging, really, isn't it? Um, th- th- I'm talking about Brexit, so I was going to use this as an example, that uh, currently the, the UK government... Um, th- there's a dispute. Where are we heading for? What sort of Brexit is it going to be? Um, and I don't think they know, really... Um, how can we know what the next steps in negotiation are? Well, I think and it's so unclear. I mean, this is my, my opinion. Perhaps, you, perhaps I'm seeing it wrong, but I think it's so unclear. They don't know where to go. They don't know what the final outcome is going to be. They don't know how to get there. And uh, um, we pray that God will help them muddle through as, as best as possible. But I'm... Destination matters. And we've got two destinations here. Zion the city of God, that is the destination that God has in mind for his people. What is the final outcome of this world going to be? Now, if you um, watch Doctor Who or Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the end of the world is this huge explosion, and that's it, it's all finished. That was a terrible, depressing thought. God says... The future of this world is a glorious heavenly city. Think of it like that. God there, people there, human flourishing there, everything going on there. That's a brilliant place to be. That's what God has in store. The future of the world is God's glorious city. But he says that's not the only possible destination because even now in this world at this point, you are choosing which way to tread your footsteps and this is, this is the, the unpalatable and unpleasant alternative. Rebels and sinners will be broken. Those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. I don't think he's talking, I don't think he's about gardening. I think this is about the, uh, this has a religious impact to it, that their sort of non-God of the Bible religion involved oaks and worshipping trees and wonderful gardens, things like that. But, I mean, whatever it is that attracts our hearts instead of the Lord would fit here, wouldn't it? You'll be ashamed of those things you'll say, how stupid I was to invest my heart and my life and my all in everything like that. Jesus is the person in whom to invest my soul, my life, my all, isn't he? You'll be ashamed if you chose the other. And he says, you'll end up like an oak with fading leaves, verse 30, in a garden without water. We actually have some plants in our, in our back room which are 
frighteningly like that, actually. They, just, they were once flourishing, but due to cold, lack of sun, and that neither Maria and I remember to water them properly, they're just sort of flaking, dried up, husk sort of things. And God says, dear soul, if you turn from me, that's what you will end up as. What a foolish choice to make. And the mighty man and his work, oh, you might say, but I've achieved so much. Do you know how big my bonus was last month? A hundred thousand pounds. I met somebody who who said of his son, my son brought in a bonus last month of a hundred thousand pounds. What could be wrong with that? Well, might be very good, might be, um, could be a lot of things wrong with that. But here you see is the mighty man and his work, verse 31. Somebody who's been hugely successful. And he says, if that was done without God, all that achievement does is produce tinder. Tinder's what you use to to make a fire. And you'll be the the one that, that, that burns up. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark and both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. What a sad, sad sad alternative do you understand what's laid before us this morning do you understand what God is saying to us through this do you understand that the road you tread now will lead to one future or another do you hear God saying there is a way out a way back away forward come let us reason together and who would not reason with God when he makes an offer like that let's sing